Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Carolina and Clara, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on the Mosaic of Science, joined with Professor Carlos Ribeirum. Carlos Ribeiro is a principal investigator at the Champalimau Foundation in Lisbon, Portugal. He completed his PhD in the University of Basel, where he studied in vivo imaging of the molecular and cellular mechanisms used to sculpt the tubular breathing network of the fruit fly in Marcus Affolter's lab. He then carried out his postdoc at the IMP in Vienna, Austria, where he worked on embryonic axon guidance in Barry Dixon's lab. He's now a PI at Champalimau, researching behavior, metabolism, and the relationship between nutrients and internal states. Additionally, he's also currently serving as the Secretary General of the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies. Welcome to the podcast, Carlos. Hello. Great to be here. We're very happy to have you on. Um, to start us off, would you like to tell us a little bit about the research your lab does and what motivated you to research these topics in the first place? So my lab is interested in understanding how animals maintain homeostasis, especially nutrient homeostasis, and especially how the interaction between the body and the brain actually allow the animals to do that at the level of their behavioral output. And um, we study this in a kind of holistic approach. So we really look at the level of neuronal computations, how they instruct processing of information, how this then leads to changes in behavior. And then we also take in actually, or take on the whole question of interaction between the body and the brain. To which extent does the metabolism of the whole animal change when nutrient states or reproductive states change? How does that that influence brain function? How does the microbiome affect these interactions? And then also how, for example, reproduction and aging shape the way the brain reacts to different nutritional perturbations. And I think what we aim for is really a holistic understanding of how animals, the animal as a system, reacts to changes in diet, and then how that affects brain information processing so that the animal can optimally, or as optimally as it can, actually regain uh, the, the homeostatic balance. And kind of, I think what also sets us a bit apart from many of our amazing colleagues working on, for example, hypothalamic control of feeding behavior and feeding motivation, is that we are not so much interested in what makes an animal want to eat or not to eat, but really what makes the animal select foods which contain specific nutrients which the animal is lacking. So we really want to understand how the lack of a specific nutrient, for example, essential amino acid, which is one of our key kind of pet nutrients, then is detected by the brain either directly or through the proxy of body signals, and then change the decision-making of the animal, the foraging behavior, to then allowing the animal to find and select to eat foods which contain that specific nutrient. Really interesting. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. And I'm sure you've gotten this question before, but when I think about human beings and our strange behaviors, um, obviously we are very much living in a distracted world where it's difficult to tune into our bodies and understand what sort of nutrients we are lacking and where to get them from as we live in this consumerist world where we're so guided by like sugars and fats and dare I say dopamine. <laughs> um, so how much do you think this applies to humans? Is it like a fundamental behavior and do does it still influence human behavior a lot? I think that's a question which can be asked about any of the questions we ask ourselves about cognitive uh, or kind of brain processing aspects which we study in animals, right? To which extent do they affect or uh, apply to humans? I think there are three ways of thinking about this. One is that um, we tend to underestimate to which extent our biology still con controls us. And especially for nutrition, this is especially complicated because 
um, it's difficult to monitor really the food choices and the behaviors we do over a very long time, which is, I think, what we need to do, right? It's not about the single choice. This is really about integrated decisions over many, many different weeks. Also, we're not very good at cognitively reporting what we eat and why we eat it, which is obviously something industry has been using really well, right? I mean, all these famous studies of us having a very difficult time to decide how much food is in a bowl, depending if the bowl is small or big. Um, and uh, so I think I think we tend to underestimate how much our nutritional state affects us. And there are beautiful studies now or showing that, but you need to put people into a very controlled environment and really look at what they eat very carefully to see these things. So that's my first part of the answer. Second part of the answer is that obviously humans are different, right? Because the cultural aspect is huge in everything we do, and especially for food, uh, you know, I mean, the best food we're ever going to eat is always the food which our grandmothers and mothers cooked for us. And also, we, there's a huge cultural aspect to what type of foods we like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is also what makes uh, working on food a very rewarding and fascinating topic because you get to interact with people like chefs and, and people who have thought a lot about these things. Now, separating this cultural aspect from the biology is very, very difficult. Okay, and that's, I think, why I have a huge respect for my colleagues working on these questions in humans. Um, and also, it's very difficult to manipulate variables like the nutritional state, the microbiome, microbiome state of humans. Um, now, again, the way I like to think about this is, and just by the way, sorry, this is the same thing as for navigational strategies or economic, you know, that all the neuroeconomic studies, for example, are never done on students of econ economics, right? Because they have a different way of approaching these type of questions, which is the learned cultural aspect. Now, um, I think the, the way I like to think about that, that culture has also evolved out of uh, behavioral homeostasis a uh, way of thinking about it. It's just, uh, you know, culturally encoded. And uh, this is also, but it makes things complicated. And that's why we use model organisms, right? Because there is a little bit easier to disentangle. So I think that's, that's two aspects of it. And then the third aspect is we have to think hard about pathological conditions and more naturalistic conditions in which animals have evolved and and I think in humans, especially when it comes to food availability, the question is, are we in an obesogenic type of patho pathology-inducing environment in our Western uh, cultural uh, domain, or uh, do we still are we still able to use kind of the, the norms or the ways in which the system has evolved to actually operate? And that was a difficult question. I think we lean towards thinking that no. We have an environment which is uh, likely to induce feeding and obesity-like pathologies. And I think that's why some of these systems might not work, but we don't even understand how they work in general. So making that decision is actually a very difficult one. So this is my complex three-part-tight answer to your question. Yeah, some really key points covered there, but I think it leads perfectly into... Um, talking a bit about the model organism that you work on. So you work on flies, as far as I know. Can you tell us a little bit about why flies? Yeah, so we use Drosophila melanogaster as our model organism in the lab. For me, it's always been a very inspirational system to work on for many, many different reasons. I think uh, we live, or we are very lucky at the moment to live in the golden age of neuroscience, and I think we live in the diamond age of Drosophila circuit neuroscience at the moment. Um, and I hope we're going to see even more of this. But I think we live in a very privileged position now and, and the moment now to do Drosophila circuit neuroscience. I think what I find fascinating or really cool about Drosophila, using Drosophila is that it's a whole organism. Okay, So most questions which people have always asked in Drosophila, be it from you know, genetics with Morgan starting over 100 years ago to then going to developmental biology, developmental cell biology, and now be going on since the 60s, 70s, right, with the work of uh, Seymour Benzer, right, that this is really 
a great moment to ask questions about the whole organism. There are very few people doing something like Drosophila cell culture. I mean, there are people out there and it's actually a cool method. But this is kind of minority compared to actually other fields like in neuroscience, for example, or cancer. Um, so that's something I find really cool. The other thing is that it's a system where you can really work at all different levels of understanding from the molecular cellular uh, level to cell type, cell circuits, to organs, to the whole organism, and even people working at the level of uh, social interactions, right? So it allows you to really work very stringently and mechanistically at all these different levels. And finally, as a discovery scientist, because I think that's how I would define myself, I'm someone who follows up discoveries, observations into places which maybe we haven't thought uh, to go, like for example, microbiome. If you would have asked me 10 years, 15 years ago when I started the lab, microbiome like, was definitely not on my bingo card. Um, we we look at things and look at what does the animal do. And if it's relevant for the animal, it shows us a phenotype. And we think that's actually of general relevance. We are going to follow that up. And I think doing this type of discovery, screen-based, hypothesis-free approaches as long, I mean, as much as that exists, right, in, in science, I think that's something I find really, really cool, right? We can do screens. Uh, we can test a lot of different genes, a lot of different neurons, a lot of different circuits without really knowing if they're going to have a phenotype or not, see that they have a phenotype and then follow them up. And then I think also it's a fantastic community, right? Josophila has always lived from a community spirit, from a spirit of history, right, of uh, uh, knowing each other, a spirit of sharing resources, generating community resources, like the Connectome, the Gulf 4 libraries, the Fly Cell Atlas, right? And then really sharing also these resources and therefore advancing the whole field as, as a whole thing. And then what else? Uh, and then technologies. I think that's the other thing which flies are really cool at, right? Because they're more easy to manipulate and easy to do more stringent type of clear molecular type of experiments. And because the generational transgenic time is very short, right? We can move in with new discoveries very rapidly and implement them and test, do they really work in people, right? Um, so like things like, you know, spatial transcriptomics or, or optogenetics or whatever, like imaging, et cetera, you can go really quickly and, or CRISPR, right? You can really go in very quickly and use them in the animal, where it's just a single experiment in mouse will take you years, right? And so I think, these are all reasons why flies have always been at the cutting edge of whatever people have done. I mean, there's this, I mean, to be honest, it's also disadvantages, right? Like I can tell you one big disadvantage is its size. I mean, it's cool. We can keep hundreds and do thousands of experiments, but we cannot do freely behaving calcium imaging or recordings, right? We have to do the other way around. We have to get the fly to think it's moving in a virtual reality environment. But that's, I think, it's a huge disadvantage in our current moment of time in neuroscience. We would love to be able to image and record from freely foraging and moving flies. We cannot do that. Um, and another disadvantage is also that um, we cannot use viruses. I mean, there's also all kinds of other cool things we can do. But there are things which we are also a little bit limited still there. But at the end, all insights are valuable insights because a evolution doesn't reinvent or often finds the same solution. So whatever is found in Drosophila often ends up being highly relevant for any other type of organism, including this exotic animal, which we call human. And also, um, I think at the end, because you can get stringent mechanistic insights, it creates a null model, right? To which then other systems like rodents, humans, whatever, cnidarians, hydra, whatever, right, people are interested in, that can serve as a go-to reference then. Yeah, I can see it has so many advantages. I think for me personally, one of the coolest things about Drosophila is the fact that, yeah, you can look at like the whole circuitry, the whole brain, um, you have like such amazing genetic tools and accessibility, whereas with like mice, for example, you know, even even looking at a single brain area is is very extensive. And then you 
does this brain area translate to like this behavior? How does it affect the circuitry in this way, etc.? It's all it's usually on a very cell by cell basis or or groups of cells basis. Whereas in Drosophila, you can really look at the whole thing, and I think that that allows you to draw perhaps more robust conclusions. Um, having said this, you know I think that as neuroscientists, we kind of envision that if we know like all of the molecular mechanisms, if we know all of the anatomy, if we understand all of the behavior, we'll finally have an answer to what is neuroscience or what is going on. And do you think like with with these model organisms like C. elegans, like Drosophila, where we have way more extensive knowledge than we have of like the mouse brain, let alone the human brain, and we still are not there yet. What do you think, where do you think is the gap? Is it, do you think it's a... a a technical gap? Do you think it's an epistemological gap? Do you think we just need to move to a smaller, more conserved organism? What do you think? Well, first of all, I think that's right. One of the definitions of, of doing science or not generating knowledge is that we will never fully understand everything, right? I mean, the reason is also because the goalpost keeps on shifting, right? I mean, what is it really understanding? And I mean, if, if you start looking at the amazing progress we have done. I mean, tomorrow, for example, I'm going to give up my annual lecture in chemosensory systems to our PhD program students, right? And it's actually cool because, right, I've given this lecture for like 20 years. I already gave it when I was a postdoc. And so, you know, we went from really the, the pioneering work from Richard Axelor and um, all the people who have cloned different receptors like Leslie Vossel, et cetera, right? Really knowing or like identifying the receptors and the no finding, you know, there are these neurons in the nose which project to these things. Oh, they're called glomeruli, right? I mean, how does this work, right? To kind of, in the fly now, more or less have the full circuit going down to almost like the motor neurons back and then having kind of at least an idea of how also the memory circuits in the Martian body uh, use dopaminergic reinforcement to, to create memories, right? And then that leading to avoidance or approach. I mean, the, the progress we have, the field has done in the last 10 years is just mind-boggling, right? I mean, because literally, right, I remember in, there was a postdoc in Barry Dixon's lab. We had these amazing journal clubs, right? And we were reading all these papers where people found, oh, my God, like, right, the same molecules are always expressing the same neurons, and the neurons look very similar. That was kind of pioneering work of Greg Jeffries. Nowadays, kind of people like, obviously, I mean, I mean, why is that a question? But that was a hugely important finding because that allows for something which we call neuronal circuit mapping, right? I mean, if that wouldn't work, I mean, all the things Alan, et cetera, Janelia, et cetera, is doing would be useless. So I think we just take things for granted, which are not so much for granted, and we just push our understanding or our definition of what understanding further and further on. And sometimes also the answer is less spectacular and sophisticated than we thought. And then some people are disappointed because they thought, you know, the brain would do all these amazing abstract computations. And actually some of these computations are actually implemented in relatively, in very robust, but less abstract and sophisticated circuits. Okay. And so we feel like, oh, we don't understand this super complex algorithm which we thought the brain is using. And in reality, maybe it is not creating a completely abstract representational map of everything in the environment, but it's using heuristics to actually move forward. So I think we don't give neuroscience enough credit, right? I mean, we have made amazing progress. Now it's a hugely challenging problem. And uh, there's going to be work for many, many, many generations of people to think about, for example, how these different circuits interact with each other, how different brain regions interact with each other, how more and more complex computations up to cognition, cognition um, and self-awareness right, are implemented. But I think actually that uh, we are seeing progress. We are just not so aware of it uh, because maybe if we keep on changing the goalposts. And also... I think neuroscience is complicated, and therefore the clinical impacts are also still lagging a little bit behind. But also there, I mean, look at these amazing papers from the people at APFL in Lausanne, right? Courtine, right? Making people walk again who had a severed spine, right? I mean, 
that was unthinkable, I mean, some years ago. Okay, there are very few people, but it works in principle, right? And again, that was decades of hard work, right? Starting with really understanding individual neurons, starting to understand how you could build uh, brain-machine interfaces and bringing together molecular circuit work with EMI work in model organisms, in rodents, modeling it there, and finally, at the end, going into the patient. And still there, it's not yet at the level where we can roll it out on every patient, but I think now we at least see how that could become possible. So I think that we shouldn't be discouraged by the feeling of lack of progress because, I mean, we are definitely making a lot of progress and we're going to see amazing things in the next 10 years. We also just asking very tough problems. And, um, and I think we keep on being more and more ambitious of what it is we really want to understand. But I also think we need new ways of thinking about the brain. I mean, let me be very clear. I think that we need to stay creative and stay put in having people come from the outside and bring in new ideas and being creative. Yeah. So I think firstly, everything you said speaks to also the use of more like basic model organisms that are still so complicated. Like the fact that we don't understand how simple behaviors in simple organisms work and that there's still so much to find out in terms of the neural circuit computations involved and then suggests that we should have different people working in different organisms so that you can make comparisons across organisms. Um, so when you speak about creative ways of approaching neuroscience, are you referring to what you mentioned with whole organisms and looking at brain-body interactions? I mean, we still haven't understood the C. elegans, how C. elegans make turns, et cetera, right? I mean, come on, are you, are you, are you kidding me that we're going to understand the human brain, right? Okay, so first of all, I think we have to be careful in calling these things simple, right? Because they're actually super complex. I mean, what they do is really amazing, right? And many things which even simple invertebrates do, there's no way a robot can do them at the moment, right? So I think simple has a has a bad rap here in that sense. Like, for example, if you look at C. elegans neurons, I mean, these things are crazily complex cells, okay? It's just that the worm has found ways of packing complexity into a small number of neurons, okay? And that's what makes it really complex, is that this worm neuron can do the same thing that many, many neurons in Drosophila or vertebrates do as a, as a whole, right? I mean, a classic example are chemosensory neurons again, right? They're multimodal in ways that very few of uh, insect or vertebrate neurons actually are. Okay? Now, I think the level of abstraction of computations, that's an interesting question, which we which is still out there. To which extent do invertebrates or animals with numerically uh, simple brains actually do complex computations, which I think is actually what many what draws many people to neuroscience. Okay? And I think that actually, again, we, give, we don't give enough credit to what invertebrates achieve. Because if you think about, for example, foraging strategies, which is something we are very interested in, right? Like uh, the exploration, exploitation, exploration, exploitation trade-off calculations, or things like search strategies in a more abstract way. I mean, these are very ancient problems which even microbes had to, or the first single cells had to solve. And I think that they are also solved uh, in, in invertebrates. They're just, we need to be a bit more creative in how we do behavioral assays. I think behavior, 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 right? I think I'm a geneticist by training. So it's all about phenotyping, right? Your, I mean, your answer can just be as good as phenotyping. And if you work on behavioral neuroscience, that means your behavior has to be really good. So you can ask the question because you cannot ask animals questions. So we need to be better at investing into behavior. And again, that's been a revolution. And I think we need more of it, especially also in animals which are in laboratory settings, right? Trying to make it enough ecological, but still in a way that we can still understand it, uh, because that's also always my worry. We can make things more complicated, but we need to make it more understandable. And then at the end, it depends on what is an answer for you, right? Again, I was trained in a molecular environment. I'm a molecular cell biologist, right? Uh, and I remember still uh, discussing signaling pathways at the institute retreat. And then a 
cryptographer got up and said, are you kidding me? Is that really a mechanistic answer? I mean, you don't know which atom of the receptor binds the atom of the ligand. I mean, until you don't show me that, that's not an answer. So I think we also have to accept, and I think that's very important for the future of neuroscience and science in general, when multiple people work together with different backgrounds, that there are different answers which are valid for different people. Okay, And so we need to understand and also agree that for a cell biologist, maybe the answer is not the same thing as for a computational neuroscientist who maybe wants to understand the implementation of a complex reinforcing learning theory. Right? Um, and I think creativity means keeping on to the dialogue, deviating from maybe the way we have been thinking about how the system works, daring of going to the unknown, but making still sure that we're going to get an answer, right? Because I love creativity. I mean, creativity is what draws me to this, I mean, to this job, right? Is creativity and working with amazing people. But we should never forget that there is the word create in, in creativity. And creating means we need to have something at the end we can point to as having been created. Although I, I come from a German-speaking background, I was born and grew up in Switzerland in the German-speaking part. And there, science is, the word is Wissenschaften, right? It's creating knowledge. So it's, it's again, not creative. Creativity is not only the brainstorming phase. It's at the end also translating that into getting insights. And that's for me the magic, right? The magic is, oh my God, how does this work? Right? Having these meetings of like, I have no idea, then coming up with an idea, testing it rapidly, which is what I also like about flies, right? Also, the fact that it's a very cheap organism allows my students and postdocs to do whatever they want to a certain extent without me having to put the bill at the end of the day, right? Which for I maybe mean, also do mouse experiments on the lab. I can tell you that's absolutely not viable at the budget level, but also at the ethical level. I mean, let's be clear, right? There's an ethical difference of working with invertebrates and vertebrates. And so we can mess around much more in flies, right? Test, test quickly some things. And if it looks like that's going to give an answer, right, we can do then the stringent experiment. So I think creativity for me means also going new ways and also accepting maybe answers, which we thought at the beginning would not be the ones we want, but which the system at the end shows us. So I think there's a lot of, of new ways to go and new answers to accept. And I think it's super exciting. I mean, again, microbiome, who would have thought, right, that these bacteria in the gut do something? I mean, we still don't know exactly what they do. Or that inter-organ communication, or that nowadays we would go to a computational neuroscience uh, meeting like COSA and we would have an immunologist give a cool talk about how the brain affects the immune system. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, I think I'm very excited about the future. I'm very excited. Um, I love that. Though. Amazing yeah. answer. I was just going to say, I really enjoyed learning this new German word. And I have a, a particular affection with languages and learning new languages. And I think it allows you to have such an interesting perspective on the world. And hearing you describe it in such a way has also made me very excited about the future of neuroscience. And we recently released an episode on what is beautiful science. And we debate a lot and and pick a lot on how scientists need to be aware of biases and definitely accepting the answers that we have as opposed to the theories that we'd like to have. Um, That's exactly what I was thinking. And how we discussed in that episode how there's beauty in the questions that we ask and the hypotheses that we have, but also in the experiments that we design and in how we interpret the results at all these different levels. There's like different types of beauty, I guess. Um, and yeah, we can't get, we have to, I, mean, I think the beauty lies in embracing whatever you discover. Yeah. And at the end also seeing the beauty in that, right. And I think that's actually very, very difficult sometimes because we fall in love with our ideas and, you know, sometimes we go into whole fields because we love actually a concept and then you do an experiment then you go like, oh my God, I mean, that's not how it should be. Right. But then actually it grows on you. Right. It has, oh, actually, you know. Actually, there's a reason why, oh, oh, actually, oh, oh, now I understand something else, which, oh, ah, right? And so at the end, I think we need to have that humility as science, as experimental scientists, especially, of accepting the magic of that moment also, right? I mean, for me, there's nothing more magic than going to a lab meeting and going like, oh, this will be a difficult lab meeting because, you know, that's been a project which is stuck. And then suddenly the student or poster presents something. Sometimes the person is not even aware of that because like, oh, the experiment didn't work. And then people go like, no, no, actually, you know, 
that's really cool what you found because it explains something else I saw at the meeting, et cetera. I think we need to embrace that. If not, we shouldn't be scientists, right? Then we should be politicians or whatever, right? Spin yeah. doctors, right? And I think there is a lot to gain there. So I read this paper of yours about craving for the future, the brain as a nutritional prediction system. And I'm specifically very interested in predictive coding in general. And I found interesting the paper in relation to homeostasis and control theory perspective. Could you tell us a little bit about both control theory and what anticipatory homeostasis looks like in terms of nutrition in Drosophila? Okay. I'm happy that, that you highlight that, that review. I mean, it was actually a lot of fun to write that with two graduate students in the lab, one of which is a physicist, um, because I would never want to claim that they understand control theory, right? Um, and, and it's actually really interesting. That paper tells, that review tells us a lot about science publishing. It's one of our least cited uh, publications, but it's one of the few publications where I regularly get an email from someone and said, oh, I read that. And it really changed my way, I think, about that problem, right? And I think that tells us that there is a lot of ways of impacting science beyond just uh, citation and the age factor. Now, what is this paper about is the idea, which obviously, I mean, we didn't come up with this. I mean, amazing people have thought about this. Um, and I think the context, the concept of uh, Peter Sterling, right? And the concept of allostasis goes in that direction which is to think about uh, biological systems beyond simple feedback systems, right? So what's the problem of a feedback system? Is that you need to encounter a problem, right? A deviation from a set point. So you need to encounter a problem to then correct that problem. Now there are systems where, you know, the system is so robust, it doesn't really matter so much. Like for the classic example, which is the temperature real that, right, of a room. You know, at the end, if the temperature drops one degree below or goes two degrees above the set point, it doesn't really matter. Now, in the specific example of, of, of biological systems, there's two huge problems. One is that systems are always in competitive uh, context with other cells or organisms or even conspecific, right, which have different genetic backgrounds. And so these different genetic backgrounds are competing each other for resources and for reproductive output, okay? So kind of going into a suboptimal situation will decrease the life history, so the integrated fitness of that system, okay? And so what you want is a system which thinks about the future and says, oh, I think we're going to have a problem soon. And in anticipation, already changes the allocation of resources to even avoid that system getting into problems. Okay? And again, uh, many people, including us, have thought that that's actually maybe one of the defining principles of living systems, right? I mean, that's what DNA is, right? It, it is a selected in set of instructions, right, which have kept whatever came before that organism out of trouble for many, many generations. And some of it is anticipating problems or challenges which will come afterwards, like different life stages, right? Um, there's reason, right, why infants have a different physiology than then later uh, gestating um, people or afterwards, like at the end of life, right? And I think the idea here is that for homeostasis and nutrients, says we can think about the problem in a similar way. And especially for reproduct for females making uh, eggs, this might be extremely relevant. Why? It's because making eggs is one of the most nutrient resource demanding activities, so to speak, or uh, physiological outputs which animals can have. You need to put a lot of proteins, a lot of amino acids, salt, etc., into it. Now, if the female runs out of these nutrients and the brain reacts to it and then starts eating, it's too late because then the egg will already be done in a suboptimal way, right? So the system must have evolved to, to predict, okay, the, the, the system is now in a reproductively high state. In flight, this is done by detecting the insemination of the male because the male in many insects injects a peptide which will go to the brain or the nervous system of the fly and change its behavior. It's called post-mating behaviors, okay? And that will then make that the female will behave very differently once it has received the sperm of the male 
It will, for example, reject other males. It will obviously start uh, looking for a, a claying site and, and start laying eggs. But it will also increase its appetite for protein and salts because these are two nutrients which are extremely important for making eggs. And if the female doesn't have enough of these, it will abort egg laying. Okay? And so the way we think about that is that the mating of the male is detected as a predictive signal of future increase of egg production. And then the female automatically increases the intake of amino acids and salt Although at that stage, the female doesn't lack these nutrients because the system knows that in the future it wouldn't. And so I think there are other examples like invertebrates, this beautiful work for people like uh, Zach Knight, for example, which uh, has found the circuits which coordinate drinking and eating because eating has the same problem. So whenever we eat, we become thirsty. And it's not because the ospolarity uh, of the plasma changes, but just because when we take in nutrients, the osmolarity will change in the future, right? Because you have more nutrients now in plasma. And so to now compensate for that, then we increase our actually intake of liquids. And that makes sense. So that makes sense whenever there is a signal, which in 99% of cases throughout evolution has led to a specific outcome in the future, you hardwire the system to change the way it controls the homeostasis of the system so that it is actually adapted to a future need. And when that doesn't work, then we have something called learning and learning does nothing else, just in a more flexible uh, system in that organism, right? And again, I think it's an interesting way of also thinking about interdisciplinarity, right? Because again, I'm a molecular cell biologist, so it's not necessarily my training. I have never heard about control theory in my molecular biology training. Right? But being in, in an environment where you have people who have training in that in your lab, but also in the institute, right? At Champalimo, we are very, very lucky to work with amazing theory people, right? Then you go like, well, actually, maybe, you know, Carlos, you should think about control theory in a different way, right? And it's a bit more sophisticated. It's not incredibly more sophisticated. And I think it makes you think about biological systems in a different way. And I really think that the defining principle of living systems is that is predictive homeostasis it's also allostasis and i think there's a beautiful book by peter sterling that's called what is health which i can recommend anybody to read uh, because it it takes that idea and puts it in the domain of health and well-being in general yeah um and just to follow up in the paper you asked these two very interesting questions that i would like to ask if you could speculate on them. So you ask, how are these predictive mechanisms implemented at the cellular and molecular level? Because with me, with predictive coding, I, I'm so used to looking at it on like a circuit systems level. And because I did biochemistry in my undergrad, I kind of like want to marry these two levels together. So the fact that you raised, what does this look like at the cellular and molecular level makes me really interested. And then you also asked, how are these anticipatory signals integrated um, into control systems on evolutionary timescales? So do you think that they are integrated evolutionarily, genetically? I think two short answers. I mean, one, one of the reasons I like, I mean, I decided to go for nutritional variables which set internal states is because they are molecules, okay? And so you can imagine, or you almost have to, to stipulate that there must be machineries, molecules, proteins, which are able to detect these nutrients. So they're not an abstract entity. Like, for example, now we work a lot on foraging uh, theory, right? The statistics of the environment. There's not a molecule which measures the statistics of the environment, right? This is an integrated circuit property of the integration of the activity of the circuit, right? So it doesn't really make sense to look for a detector of food density in the environment molecule. But there is... There are machineries likely which detect specific amino acids. There are machineries which likely detect specific carbohydrates. And because we know the signal which anticipates the, the, the change in nutrient use in the female is this peptide which is injected by the female, uh, sorry, by the male into the female in flies when they uh, inseminate them. We also know there is a detector for that, and that's the sex peptide receptor. So we know that there is a sex peptide receptor, which is one of the things uh, which in collaboration with Nila Yapici, we cloned uh, during a postdoc. And so we know that is kind of the, 
detector which will anticipate a change in the future and needs to change sensor representations. Now, is that evolutionary encoded? I think so. I think for things where in 99% of the situations where the predictive signal came, a specific outcome happened, it makes sense for evolution to encode that at the genetic level. I mean, there are many, many examples, right? So whenever you detect heat on your skin, you're very likely to get burned, so you better do this, right? I mean, it would be, I mean, it would not make sense to have to learn that every time it happens, right? Whereas for things where the contingency is not so clear or is a more individual contingency, there we have evolved learning systems which allow us to learn that at the individual level, and there things are unlikely to be passed on uh, at the DNA level. There's some discussion to which extent there's transgenerational inheritance of these things at the epigenetic level. Humans, we have learning and culture, right? It's a different way of passing that on. But I think that it depends always at the contingency and also it depends on the impact on fitness, right? I think fitness is an important kind of um, normative level. And that's also the beauty of nutrients. That's also something I like is that we can always bring back our research, our computations, our circuits, our molecules to why does the system do that? And we can calculate the impact on fitness because nutrients have a huge impact on fitness. And we can even measure that in flies, right? Then that gives us a normative aspect when we want to, for example, model these types of things. I mean, one more thing which I forgot to mention before about flies, and I think it's going to be hugely important for our future, is that, you know, in general, to, to, to feed the lab and our flies, meaning to write grants, right? What we mainly do is we turn flies often into small humans, right? And we make a disease model out of it, or we say, you know, humans do this, flies do that, and that's why it's relevant. And I think that's actually true, right? I mean, we've learned an amazing amount of things about diseases and strategies to, to uh, avoid them or to actually cure them from working in vertebrates. However, human well-being goes beyond medical systems, right? And insects are key to human well-being, right? I mean, food security, right? Or our ecosystems, right? Everything relies on insects. And I think with the climate change and the climate crisis, insect neuroscience, insect biology is gonna be actually at the center of understanding how these changes affect insects and how that affects our ecosystems. And so I think it's gonna bring actually understanding of nematode biology or soil biology is super important, insect biology actually to the center of what I think funders should be funding. And we see that already now, right? The Kavli Foundation, for example, the Allen are now going into that direction of starting to think about what's the impact of climate change on neuronal systems, on animals, try to see climate change from a neuronal perspective. And I think insects are going to be paramount for that. So I think there's many, many reasons for working on these invertebrates. And I think that is an additional one which we're going to see more in the future. Speaking of ecosystems, but also taking a little, changing our path conversational path a little bit. Um, you mentioned a few times in this discussion, the microbiome. And I wanted to ask, what do you think is the role of the microbiome in this predictive, general biological uh, machinery that you've just described? Yeah, I mean, we work in the microbiome because of a serendipitous observation, right? So what we study kind of every day in the lab, the paradigm we have in the lab is like, we remove amino acids from the food of flies. So we have a chemically defined diet. We know every single nutrient is predefined, right? So we don't use, I mean, we use sometimes, but we can use this defined diet. And then normally what happens is flies have a, female flies after three days have this huge appetite for protein, okay? Because that's a source of amino acids. And they don't increase their appetite for sugar. So it's, it's, it's very specific. But you know, that, we had these observations that from time to time, there were tubes of flies where all the flies in there didn't have a protein appetite when we removed the essential amino acid. And so a postdoc came to my office and said, you know, it's really strange, right? They, are, they sometimes have absolutely no protein appetite. And I, I have this observation that that seems to co coincide when the food gets kind of funky, has this funky color, okay? 
And so we were like, hmm, what could this be, right? And then, and then I, I started seeing at meetings people like François Lelier in flies, right, talking about the impact of the microbiome on animal physiology. Okay, and there were also the first papers from John Cryan and Foster, etc., um, talking about the impact of the microbiome on behavior in the brain. Right, and so I, I was like, you know, maybe that's kind of some bacteria, which some for some ever, whatever reason are there. And so when we went in, we found that all our flies in the fly facility, such as Limon, we are very lucky. We have amazing platforms and facilities, and we have an amazing facility which takes care of our flies. They're so clean that more or less our flies are, have no microbiome. Okay, so they are more or less sterile just because they're kept in such a clean environment. Okay, and so it turns out that sometimes these flies were not so clean and they kept their microbes. Okay. And when they kept a specific type of microbe, which are two microbes, Acetobacter plantar, uh, pomorum and Lactobacillus plantarum, when they had these two bacteria still in their gut, these are the bacteria which you find in flies in the wild too, then they didn't develop a protein appetite. So for whatever reason, the microbiome keeps the protein appetite of flies low, even if they're amino acid deprived, okay? And this is a huge impact. I mean, there's a huge impact on the behavior. And they do that in a special way because they don't do that by producing amino acids and giving it to the fly, okay? So they improve the fitness of the flies. The flies can make eggs, although they are low in amino acids, right? So there is a fitness advantage. We have actually paper in, present in preparation. I think we know now why the fly, the microbes actually do that to the fly. And we think it has to do with toxicity management, okay? But I think in general, the way to think about this is twofold. First, all animals evolved with a microbiome, okay? So they are part of the system. So whenever we look at a germ-free animal, we are looking at an animal which is lacking an organ, okay? I think that's the way we have to think about it. We shouldn't think about an animal which, has, which is germ-free as the ground state. We should think about the dirty animal as the ground state and removing the microbiome as then removing something. And I think they are there to change the physiology, to provide nutrients, to modify how nutrients are digested and therefore made, are made available to the animal, and also how they're detoxified. And then actually the microbiome stops having its magic, right? Because sometimes we think about the microbiome as this magic entity, which somehow changes the brain, right? But if we accept the fact that nutrition and nutrients have a huge impact on brain function and brain states, and the fact that the microbes change the way nutrients are digested and take these nutrients and make new bioactive compounds, which then can act on the brain, then it stops being a magic entity and it just be, becomes a part of the physiological system, kind of another aspect of brain-body interactions. And that's the way we think about it. And, and I think that requires um, interdisciplinarity, right? I have a postdoc in the lab who's a microbiologist. She's the one who you know, generates mutant bacteria. That's the cool thing about flies, very easy to generate germ-free flies. It's very easy to put mutant bacteria back in. Um, but we also need people who understand um, metabolomics, right? So we do a lot of metabolomics in the lab. And I think that keeps one mentally fit and opens new exciting avenues. But it's also a challenge, right? Because when you have a lab, right, you 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 need to have people talking to each other and sharing their experience. And so the way we found the solution we found is that everything resolves around behavior and nutrition, right? So everybody in the lab does behavior, and then some people do you know two photon calcium imaging, some people do behavior and and modeling of behavioral strategies, some people do their metabolomics, some people do microbiome. But at the end, at lab meetings, everybody shows behavior. And so I think we have the common interest in understanding the behavior, but we have different perspectives to look at it. And, you know, I come from a very multicultural background, right? I mean, I'm a, my parents were immigrants. My father was an illegal immigrant from Portugal, right, who went to Switzerland. And, and, and you know, I grew up as a kid of immigrants in a country which, you know, I didn't really understand, Switzerland. And, and I think... You can see that as a challenge, but you can see that also as an amazing opportunity, right? To think about a system from the outside with a different perspective. You know, the different cultural signals and the different things people value, they're not wrong on their own, but they have a certain meaning within that context. But by bringing it together, 
right? You can have the best of it of the world, right? You can have the organization of the Swiss, right? While having the food from southern countries, the flexibility too. And I think, you know, that's what we should be doing as scientists. We should bring in all the cool things from the different perspectives, mix them together, and then some new cool stuff will come out as long as we remain stringent, right? It's not about making up stuff here. It's about recombining it into new answers and also being open-minded about the fact that different people might have different criticisms and different perspectives, but also valuing this criticism as sometimes being valid in their system, but not in our system, right? It also means we need to think hard about training, right? Because science is so complex. It's already so difficult to keep on top of a single topic like dopaminergic neuron, that then, you know, if you have to put on top of that metabolomics and microbiome, et cetera, it becomes very challenging. And then the solution is working together with experts. And so I think, I think we can, diversity, we always talk about diversity, but I think very few people articulate why diversity is important. I think diversity is important because difference of perspective, different approaches, different narratives, and also, Different people bring their different problems on the table, like female health, hugely important, right? Super under-researched. Why? Well, guess, right? Why dudes were dis- deciding where the money goes, right? And I mean, again, my family had different problems than the average Swiss family, right? Coming from a poor, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the first going to university, right, in my family ever, right? Obviously, I had different challenges than other people had. And these challenges need to be recognized and then acted upon and they can only be done if people are at the table when we're making decisions and that's also for example why i'm a fence i like to be the fence secretary general is because we need organizations right we need organizations like fence sfn etc to bring on these things and act systemically like fence does with alba right who is our our kind of diversity champion right and i think we need to be active as scientists and shape the way science is done in the lab but also as a community. Beautifully said. <laughs> really well said. Uh, I like how you managed to link the microbiome to <laughs> diversity in science. And also, can I just say I relate so much? I'm actually half Swiss and half okay. Singaporean. <laughs> Anyways, um, I think we'll wrap up the episode there. Yeah. Um, so thank you so, so much, Carlos, for joining us and for sharing your passion and excitement. Like it's really, really had a big influence on me. Yeah, it's really refreshing. And all of your ideas uh, about the future of neuroscience and the questions we should be asking, especially relating to creativity as well, and that perspective that is not just about brainstorming, but about creating something as well. Really inspiring. Let me be clear, right? By creation, I mean, experimentally grounded creation, because I think that's also what's, that's actually what's really challenging as a scientist, right? Is that ultimately you still need to do the experiment and make sense out of it right and that's a very humbling experience because as we all know the outcome is not always the one we hope for right Um, and i think creativity also should not go in that direction which is the succumbing to the pressures of fulfilling certain ideas yeah yeah so Thank you for joining us, Carlos. And um, if you like this episode, please feel free to share it on your social media, Instagram, Twitter. Our handle is at neuroverse underscore pod. And check out our website for all resources um, to all of our episodes and for more information about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 